he concludes by saying this. Hear then the reading of God's holy word. Brothers, I can tell you on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Let us go to the questions and answers of Lord's Day number 27 in the back of our Psalter hymnal. I'm on page 35. Speaking about the meaning, the significance, the blessing of the sacrament of baptism. We read, beginning in question 72, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ wash away our sins just as water washes away dirt from our bodies. But more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that the washing away of our sins spiritually is as real as physical washing with water. And should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are in God's covenant and are his people. They, no less than adults, are promised the forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism... The mark of the covenant, infants should be received into the Christian church and should be distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. So we pause then to consider the last four verses of this passage in Acts, where Paul calls the people to repent to be baptized and speaks of the promise being for them and for their children and for many who are far off. Interesting passage. The foundational uh, society on this earth is the family. One of the things that we see all throughout scripture and all throughout the beginning, since the beginning of history is that the family is the way that God has preserved not only a people for himself, but how he has preserved, in many ways, 
his truth. So we pause to consider the family, baptism, the forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood, and we do it through this passage around Pentecost. This, of course, is Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where Peter first publicly preaches the gospel of Christ's finished work on the cross and the resurrection. This is the question uh, of not only the Christian faith, but of all human existence, kind of what happens right here. Peter preaches this ultimate, this transcendent truth that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Christ, that by faith in him, we can be made right with God. And this is the fundamental question of human existence. It is the fundamental question of all religion as well. How is one right with God? If we think about it, atheism or even agnosticism uh, is also an attempt to answer this question. Both of these say that pursuing this question uh, will yield no certain answers. But all faiths in the world are an attempt to answer this question. How is one right with God? I was looking, uh, looking around this week and I saw that there is a, a television show that is airing now. It's called The Story of God. The Story of God. And it attempts to answer this question, who is God and how do we relate to him rightly? So I was interested enough to see what was going on, so I watched a little bit of an episode. One of the problems with this show is that it offers so many different answers to this question, who is God and how do we relate to him rightly, that the viewer cannot be anything but confused at the end. The host walks around and interviews people from various faiths all over the world. And each person has a different answer, who is God, how do you know him, how do you relate to him rightly. Thus, if we take any of these answers to have any merit, you'll be nothing but confused. But in the case of Peter, here at Pentecost, and what is so beautiful about the gospel message, the Christian gospel message, is that there is a clear and unequivocal answer to this question. Peter says, repent and be baptized. And thus we see that the sacrament of baptism, the sign of baptism, lies at the heart of these questions. How, is, how are we made right with God? How do we know God and relate to him rightly? As we consider this passage, then we find these things. That God gives us baptism as a sign and as a pledge of his saving work. All those who are baptized should look to their baptism to rest in God's promise. As we consider this text, first we ask ourselves, is baptism a necessity? Is baptism a a necessity? Peter's initial response hits us as being a little bit off, doesn't it? When everyone is cut to the heart and, and they're convicted of the truth of the message of Christ and they say, okay, well, we need to do something about this. Peter, uh, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. We read that and we think, is Peter in some way saying that baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation? As Reformed Christians, don't we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone? Moreover, 
we read explicitly in the catechism in the questions and answers tonight that baptism is precisely not that thing that washes away our sins, but it is only the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we believe and we trust Christ. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits of Christ to all who believe, and that is what washes away our sins. So how do we understand what Peter is commanding here? Is Peter saying that baptism is absolutely necessary? But it's true that most of us come at this question when we read this text, we're coming at it from the wrong angle. We think, uh, we come to the statement thinking, well, what about the person who dies before being baptized? The person who trusts Christ on their deathbed? Or what about the person who is always in churches that don't emphasize baptism? Sadly, there are churches like this today. And they just never see its importance, and and, and it never happens in their life. But they always believe the gospel. They, They always believe that Christ is the one who saves them from their sins. What about these kinds of situations? But these are exceptions, aren't they? These are exceptions, not the rule. And this verse is not talking about exceptions. It teaches us that the normal way of things... The normal way that God brings about his salvation is those who believe, those who have repented and believed, they are also baptized. Baptism is the sign which God has given us to signify the wonderful realities that happen in Christ. This verse shows us that baptism is very important. It shows us that it is very significant And that God has ordained and declared that it is the sign that accompanies salvation. It teaches us that the blood and the spirit of Christ removes our sins. Just as water takes away dirt from the body. As we saw last week, it is where God tells us something. The sacraments are places where God speaks to us. In a world where we can have a popular TV show that I just mentioned that relentlessly pursues uh, a word from the divine, a word from God, wanting to know what does God say about this? What does God say about that? What does he think about this? In baptism, God speaks to us and tells us that salvation is certain and it is finished in Christ. Just as Peter has a definitive word for the question of all those gathered around when they ask, what shall we do? Peter, what shall we do? He gives them a straight and a definitive answer. So God has a definitive word for us in baptism, and it is this. Salvation is finished in Christ. That's what baptism tells to us. Salvation is finished in Christ. Baptism is not magic, although it is spiritual. It is also not a meaningless traditional ritual or rite in pursuit of the divine. It is our obedience to Christ's ordinance. It is simple, and it is clear, and it is a definitive word from God. It is a sign where we see that all that we need for salvation is found in Christ, our Lord. One of the beautiful things that the Catechism brings out for us also is that baptism is an assurance. So we pause to consider that as well. Baptism and assurance. Baptism becomes for us a source of assurance. We live in a religious or a spiritual culture with all kinds of confusion. There's all kinds of confusion about uh, who is God and, 
And, and what does he say about this or that or the other? There are all kinds of confusion, even within the Christian church, about knowing whether or not the Holy Spirit is working in you. And whether or not you have experienced the blessings of the Holy Spirit. There are many people who want to demand a sign from God in this way. For many people, they uh, say that all Christians must do something like uh, speak in tongues, which is ironically called uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we see in this passage in Acts that water baptism is closely tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a sign that is given to signify the work of the Holy Spirit. We remember that this passage before us is the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, which is one of the most powerful examples in all of Scripture of the Holy Spirit coming upon people so that they're able uh, to speak other languages. I'll read a chunk of this part of Acts chapter 2, where we see just this happening, the Holy Spirit coming upon people and then people beginning to speak other languages. Acts chapter 2, verse 2 says this, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So at Pentecost, the Spirit descends. Many of the people begin prophesying, and the people in the area around them are hearing them in their own language. This is a dramatic and a powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit, which signified a new turn in redemptive history. The Spirit coming upon people and allowing them to speak in this way. Speaking in tongues, clearly here, uh, means human languages. Thus, if there were any time for Peter to connect this kind of miraculous work to the normative work of the Holy Spirit, this would be it. If you want to receive the Holy Spirit, this is the kind of thing that's going to accompany it. And yet Peter does not do that. Peter calls them to repentance And he calls them to baptism. And these are the two things that signify the receiving of the Holy Spirit. This is because it is baptism that is God's definitive word that his spirit is in you and on you. Too often we look to the things that God has given to us for our assurance and we say, that's not good enough for me. I want another kind of assurance. I want assurance on my own terms. When I was growing up, actually when I was around college age, I had uh, a friend who seemed to struggle with this. He struggled with this idea that God is the one who tells us where it is that we find our assurance from him. And he said that what he had always wanted, what would make him uh, rest easy in his faith, 
as if he, was, if he were able to see someone miraculously healed right before his eyes. He would, he would always say, if I can see that, then I know that God is real. I know that Christ is real, and, and I know that I will be able to rest in him. But again, who are we to say that we know what is best for our souls? I'm reminded of a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, I am sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. In other words, God knows what is best for us. God knows what is best for us even better than we do for ourselves. And God has given us sure and certain signs that he is with us and that he is in us. In the case of tonight's passage, that sign is baptism. That is God's given sign that he has given to his people. That he gives so that we may be assured that we have the Holy Spirit. This is why right in the shadow of all this miraculous tongues speaking, Peter and Luke say nothing about it when it comes time for the people to be baptized. It is, in fact, it is the sign of baptism that he connects to receiving the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. You will receive the gift of the Spirit. What are we to conclude from this? We conclude that if we want to be assured, if we want assurance that the gospel is true, if we want assurance that we are in Christ, if we want all of that and to know that we have been claimed by God, we ought to cling to Christ and cling to our baptism. Those two things, cling to Christ and look to your baptism. As we look to the Savior in faith, as the community of the baptized, we can be assured that not only do we have the Spirit, but He is active in us. So the Catechism tells us that baptism, in baptism, God wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Baptism is God's way of proclaiming an objective word that is more sure than our own personal experiences. Baptism is not dependent on our own interpretation of our life, our own interpretation of our circumstances or our feelings at a certain moment. It is how God speaks to us. Thus we see that God gave this sign to us in order to stop us from putting the weight of our assurance on our own experience. Perhaps you have heard people put it this way. How do you know you are saved? How, how do you know you are in Christ? And, and sometimes an answer will come back that says something like this. Well, I had a really emotionally charged experience one night at a conference. While this may be true, it is better to say something like this. I know I am saved. I know I am in Christ because I trust in Christ As I look to my baptism. Because that is putting our assurance on God's activity. And not our own experience. I know that I am saved because God is holy. God does not lie. God does not make things up. And he keeps his promises. And so I know that I am in Christ. Because I trust in him. As I look to my baptism. We place our hope in God's objective work first. And what he has done in the gospel. Finally, we consider 
the recipients of baptism, the recipients of baptism. Historically, the church has baptized believers and their children. There are several reasons for that. The first is God's covenant with his people. We see baptism is a sign of God's covenant. God first began to form a people with Abraham in the book of Genesis. He was given special promises of God regarding his salvation and the future of his descendants. And God wanted there to be a sure and a certain sign to signify these promises and also to mark out his people from the rest of the earth. It was a way that God proclaimed his promises to them and assured them that he would make good on his word. This was the sign of circumcision. And it was in this sign that God said to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the way that he proclaimed it to the people of Israel. God told Abraham to circumcise his children and also the foreigner that came to live with him. And in the New Testament, we see that all those who belong to the new covenant people of God are called the heirs of Abraham. We are called the children of Abraham. We see that Peter speaks in a way that does not negate Old Testament promises, but rather fulfills them and reaffirms them. Just as Abraham was told that the sign of circumcision was for him and his children, and even the foreigner that came to live with him. So Peter says that the promise of the new covenant and the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit is for you and your children and for many who are far off. In other words, Peter casts this new covenant promise of the expanded work of the Holy Spirit within the same covenantal formula of believers and their children, and also with an added emphasis on the people of the far-off nations, as now the gospel is to be liberally proclaimed throughout the world. Thus, the sign of baptism is the sign of the fulfillment of circumcision. Paul connects these two ideas in Colossians chapter 2 and he calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. Christ who was cut off for us. Christ who suffered for us, who came under the judgment waters for us. These two signs are brought together. One is the fulfillment of the other. We see also that the new covenant speaks of families, and that just as God has been a covenant God from the beginning, in God's covenant he has dealt with families, and we see that this is still true in the New Testament. We see all kinds of evidence for this. The first is that there were prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke of the New Covenant that assured God's people that he would still be working in and through families. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 says this, It's a new covenant promise given in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Jeremiah 32 picks up on this promise and expands on it, speaks on it further and it says this. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good And the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. With who? With them and their children. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me. So that they will never turn away from me. You see these Old Testament promises of the new covenant. Say that God will still work within families. 
And the second is that all throughout the New Testament epistles in places like Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, Paul addresses children. These are letters that were given to the New Testament church, written to various congregations. And so Paul would have to be thinking of the children of these congregations as part of the church. And so, young people, even if you have not yet taken the supper, this is your special promise. That you belong to God and that he has placed his name upon you. It is the special promise that as children in Christian homes, you are marked off as members of this church and under its spiritual direction. It is one of the means that God uses to draw you to faith and to give you the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed to you in it. I know that our young people probably don't want to hear this, but in so many ways young folks, you are like your parents. I've spent now 30 years trying to escape the shadow of my father, and uh, I come more and more into it each and every day. You are so, in so many ways, you are like your parents. We see evidence for this all throughout scripture. We see that in Genesis, as God created people in his own image, We see that people begin to bear children who are born in the image of their parents. Genesis chapter 5 confirms this for us. Thus, it is the norm that God brings about faith in those who are born to parents with faith. This is why we baptize our children, because they belong to God. And we trust that God will bring them to saving faith in his Son. We trust the promises of God. That God will make an everlasting covenant with his people that will be for the good of them and for the good of their children after them. This does not mean that every single person that gets baptized automatically or magically receives the Holy Spirit. That's not what it means. But rather, baptism is the sign that God has given his spirit to his people along with all the blessings of salvation by faith alone. It is the way that he proclaims the gospel to us, that we are saved by faith in Christ. And it is here, it is in something like this, where we see the mysterious working of God within the family. It is here that we see that the church in our day, in this culture, can begin to embrace a countercultural existence, it's true in scripture, it's the blessings of God, it's, what's, it's what the church has historically done. But we can especially lean into this part of what we do, that we can have a countercultural, Christ-centered existence. See, we live in a world that is so individualized and obsessed with the autonomy of the self. But if we are truly going to live biblically, We see that God has created us to be social creatures, and that first means that we are part of families. It means that we give up all of our individual desires and hopes and dreams for the good of our family. I was reminded of this as I was listening to one of my seminary professors recently. He said, here's how the church can be a light in this world. If we embrace these things together and show the world that we have a God, that we have a family, and that we have a community. Because in baptism, we not only declare 
that the one who has come to faith from outside the church or, or our child who has just been born, we not only de- declare that God's name is upon them and that he has claimed them for his own, but we also declare that they are part of this community, that just as the one who becomes baptized belongs to God, that they belong to this community as well. And so the church becomes a refuge for those who have big families, small families, or no family. And we all become part of God's family. Countercultural to say you have a God, to say you have a family, and to say you have a community. Baptism begins to bind us together in this way. God has said the blessings of Christ, the blessings of the covenant of grace, are ours by faith alone. And he declares it to us and gives us this sure sign and this pledge in baptism. You want to know that you have the Holy Spirit. Look to God's promises. Cling to Christ. Look to your baptism. Live as the community of the baptized. Live as one who has been given the triune name upon you by God. Trust in him. Look to Christ. Look to your baptism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of the church, the blessing of the family. We thank you for your promise that is held out to us. We thank you for the mysterious ways that you cause your world to continue to go round. We thank you for the family. We thank you for the fact that we can be not only a place of safety for families, but also a place of refuge for those who have none. We thank you that to belong to your family is the greatest reality we can know on this earth. We pray that you would protect our young people. We pray that because of their baptism, you would be drawing them to faith in your son. We pray that mysteriously your spirit would work even through the baptism that we see, the baptisms that we see here in this congregation. And so, Father, refresh our hearts tonight. Give us strength as we go. Help us to love those who are near to us, those who are far from us. Help us to um, trust in your providence always. Keep us safe then as we go. In Christ's name, amen. Let's respond together in